But to all the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. Neither shall it be to your honor from the Lord God. So what's going on here? Uh, King Uzziah, he was he was reprimanded for doing something that was worship to God, right? You would think that, that was a good thing. And God never said that someone from the tribe of Judah couldn't be a priest. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 7, when it is talking about the priesthood of Christ, look at what it says in verse 14. It says, For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. That's the same tribe that Uzziah came from, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. See, God didn't have to tell you everything that you weren't supposed to do. God didn't have to say, we can't have, we can't have priests from Benjamin, we can't have them from Judah. All God needed to say was that the Levites were supposed to be the priests. And when Uzziah was presumptuous and he broke that commandment, he was punished for it. Look at a New Testament example, if you would, with me. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian brethren, they were having problems with esteeming men, good men, higher than they should have. They were looking at Paul and Apollos, and, and let's just read it. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 12. Now I say this, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? And was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, up until this particular time, there is nothing written in the Bible that says, you shall not say, I am of Paul. You shall not say, I am of Cephas. There's nothing in the Bible that says that up until this point. But Paul had an expectation. They should have already known that they shouldn't have done this. In fact, as was read in our scripture reading, in chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul says, And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you may be puffed up one against another. See, Jesus didn't have to say that I want you not, I don't want you to say that I'm of Paul, I don't want you to say I'm of Apollos. See, it's enough that the New Testament already said you were to be followers of Christ. Christ was crucified for you. Christ is the one that you were to imitate. He is the one that you were to follow. He didn't have to mention all the other people. It was enough simply to say what they should have done. First of all, I want us to see that the Scriptures are restrictive when they are silent, when God has already told us what to do. But secondly, I want us to see that they're also restrictive when God has told us how to do something. In the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, they were instructed on how to make it. They were given a lot of detail as to how it was to be made. And they were also told how they were supposed to transport the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 25, starting in verse 10, we can read about the instruction, how it was to be overlaid with gold, the specific wood that it was supposed to be made out of. And picking up in verse 12, it says, And you shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be on the one side, and two rings shall be on the other side. And you shall make staves of Shechem wood, and overlay them with gold, and you shall put those staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. So God has told them, I want you to move the ark from time to time. They were transporting this ark, and he not only told them that that was something that was going to happen, he told them specifically how they were supposed to do it. Now, on at least one occasion, they didn't follow this command. 
In 2 Samuel 6, verses 3 through 13, it's kind of a lengthy reading, but I want us to look at it. It says, And they set the ark of God on a new cart. They weren't carrying it by these, by these poles that were through the rings. They had set it on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzziah and Ahio, and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new ark, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went out before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzziah put forth, or Uzzah, excuse me, put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. It was right on this occasion for the Israelites to be transporting the Ark of the Covenant. That was something that they should have been doing. However, God had told them, there's a specific way I want you to transport the Ark. There's a specific set of people that need to be transporting the Ark. And they ignored those commands. And when they ignored them... Now, God never said, don't put it on an Ark, right? God never said, uh, these other people can't move the Ark. But He told them what to do, and He told them how to do it. And when they ignored that command, it was sinful. Another New Testament example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and in the Gospel accounts as well, we read about the institution of the Lord's Supper. And, you know, partaking of the Lord's Supper is a command. To partake of the fruit of the vine and the bread, that is a command from God. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, For I have received from the Lord, which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he come. So we have a, a base command here. Jesus has said, I want you to partake of these emblems. But he didn't just say what he wanted them to do. He told them how to do it, right? He said, I want you to take this in remembrance of me. And Paul continues in verse 27, he says, Whoever shall eat this bread and drink of this cup in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so eat the bread and drink that cup. So he has said, this is the base command. I want you to eat this bread. I want you to drink this cup. And he's gone further to say, here's how I want you to do it. When you eat the bread, when you drink the cup, I want you to do it as a memorial. I want you to do it in remembrance of me. And you know, the Corinthian brethren, they weren't doing that. They were eating the bread, they were drinking the cup, they were fulfilling the base command, but they were ignoring how it should be done. And look at what Paul says. He says, For he that eats and drinks unworthy, eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. See, silence restricts us when God has told us what to do. Everything else that does not follow what God has said to do, that's prohibited. But when God has told us how to do something, it works the same way. If God has said, I want you to partake of this in remembrance of me, partaking of it in any other way that is not in remembrance is sinful. So first of all, we see that silence is restrictive when God has told us what to do. Silence is restrictive when God has told us how to do it. 
But finally, I want us to see that silence is actually prohibited, or excuse me, permissive when God has not told us how to do something. I want to turn to Judges chapter 7, if you would. We're we're going to look at the familiar story of Gideon. We may re- recall that Gideon, he was supposed to go down against the Midianites, and initially he had a great army. And through process of elimination, uh, God whittled that great army down to just 300 men. And so Gideon had to have a lot of trust in the Lord that God was going to be able to accomplish what he intended to accomplish with just those 300 men. And so in chapter 7 and verse 9, He says, And it came to pass that same night that the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it into thy hand. So God has told Gideon, I want you to take your 300 men, and I want you to go and attack the Midianites. But you know what God didn't do is he didn't give Gideon a plan of attack. He didn't say, I want you to take these men, I want you to put them in pairs, I want everybody to have a sword, and I want us to surround the camp, draw our swords and yell and strike at the same time. He didn't give him any plan of attack. And so Gideon had to come up with his own plan of attack. He had to use his best judgment to discern the best way to use these 300 men to to carry out the task that God had given him. And so, picking up in 16, and he, that is Gideon, and he divided the 300 men into three companies. He put a trumpet in every man's hand, an empty pitcher, and lamps within the pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I came to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall you do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow you the trumpet. Also on every side of the camp and say, The the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So what gives Gideon the right to kind of make up his own plan? God had told him what to do, but he hadn't given him a plan of attack. God had told Gideon, I want you to attack the Gibeonites, but it was on Gideon, or excuse me, the Midianites, but it was on Gideon to determine the best way to carry out God's will. We may also think of the Great Commission. We can find it in Mark 16 and verse 15, as well as in other passages. God told the apostles, and we inherit that commandment. He told them, I want you to go through all the world, and I want you to preach the gospel to every creature. But, you know, God didn't initially tell them in what order to preach the gospel. Now, we may think of things like the Macedonian call, right, where there was some further instruction given, but initially God didn't tell them what order to go in. He also didn't tell them how to travel. How were they going to get to all these remote places? He left that up to their own judgment. And throughout the book of Acts, we see them traveling in a couple different ways, but in Acts 20 in particular, we see them seemingly traveling on foot as well as traveling by sea, sailing in ships. They had the right to do this because while God had given them a command, He didn't specifically tell them how to carry it out. He left that up to their best judgment. And you know, we have that same authority today. God has told us that He wants us to worship Him by singing. But in order to sing in the way that is pleasing to God, He wants us to sing in a way that we can understand one another, in a way that we can teach one another. There have got to be words for that kind of singing, don't there? How are we going to get our words? How are we going to be singing the same thing? Would it be appropriate for us to all decide that we're going to memorize the same songs and then not use anything and sing from memory? Would that be appropriate? Absolutely, because we would be doing what it is that God wants us to do. What if we used songbooks? Would that be appropriate? Absolutely. What about the the PowerPoint? Or y'all use that in conjunction with the songbooks here. That's appropriate because God has told us He wants us to sing. He wants us to sing with understanding. He wants us to teach one another. 
but he hasn't told us how we're to get those words. What about the Lord's Supper? We are supposed to partake of those emblems. Is it okay for us to pass the bread around in a tray? God hasn't told us how to pass the bread around, so we have that authority. What about the cup? Would it be okay if we were to use just one cup and pass it around the room and everybody was to drink from that one cup? That would be appropriate because that is aiding us in following that command. What about multiple cups? Would that be appropriate? Absolutely, because we are still following God's command and He has not given any more specific instruction as to how we're supposed to carry that out. Let's apply this very quickly to some common issues that we run in today. What about dancing? You know, it's commonly believed that because dancing is not specifically brought up in the New Testament, there's no passage that says, I want you to dance. There's no passage that says, thou shalt not dance. It's commonly believed that it's up to our own judgment, that the Bible doesn't say anything on it at all. If you would, turn over to Galatians 5 and verse 19. We read something very similar in 1 Peter 4 and verse 3 as well. But Galatians 5 and 19 It says, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, and lasciviousness. That last word there, lasciviousness, it's not a word that we use very often. I've heard other preachers, I can't even think, probably Don is one of them. I've heard them say, this isn't a word that your mother is going to say to you when you go out, right? Watch out for lasciviousness. And it's, it's not. It's not a word we're very used to. Thayer, who is kind of an authority on the meaning of these words, he says about this word that it describes wanton acts and indecent bodily movements. And he also says that another definition for that word could be the unchaste handling of males and of females. This describes the kind of dancing that we see at prom and other similar type functions. This describes that kind of dancing to a T. And... God has given us a command. He says, I don't want you to be lascivious. So any kind of dancing that would fit that definition would be prohibited by the Scriptures. On the other hand, any kind of dancing that does not fit this description would be permitted. We have an 11-month-old baby, and I don't know if you would call what she does dancing or not, but she is always moving around. She's always jumping up and down. That would not fit the definition of lasciviousness, and that kind of dancing would be approved of. Jumping up and down for joy, that would be approved of. What about instruments of music in worship? We are commanded in Colossians 3 and verse 16, as well as in Ephesians 19, to sing to God. Ephesians 5, 19 says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody in your heart to the Lord. The New Testament says nothing specific about members of the Lord's church, about Christians using instruments. There's no passage that says, this is what I want, and there's no passage that says, thou shalt not. But we are told what it is that God wants us to do. And just like King Uzziah, there there doesn't need to be a passage that says everything that we can't do. I don't want you to worship with a guitar. I don't want you to worship with drums. It is enough simply for God to tell us what it is that He wants us to do. And I know that there is a lot of discussion that goes into this. We could talk about the the use of the word solo and what that word means. And we need to talk about those things. We need to have lessons on those things. But suffice it to say, the reason that it is not appropriate for us to worship with instruments of music is because God hasn't said that that's what He wants. God has told us what He does want, and to do anything else would be totally inappropriate. 
just like it was inappropriate for the Israelites to carry the Ark of the Covenant in a way that God had not specified, it is inappropriate for us to worship in a way that God has not ordained, in a way that God has not specified. There is nothing in our lives that cannot be checked against the Scripture, and we can't determine whether or not this is something God approves of. As we discussed in the beginning of this, the Bible is all-sufficient. We don't need other creed books to tell us whether things are right or whether things are wrong. We can check everything in our lives against the Scriptures and make a determination according to our judgment on whether or not God would be pleased with this. There are numerous things that we are going to encounter throughout our daily lives that the Bible doesn't have a specific word on. But silence does not give us license to do whatever it is that we want. We have got to examine the Bible and look at the principles of what God has said, and we've got to apply those things to our life. This evening, if you are not living in accordance with God's will, if you are taking silence as a license to do whatever it is that you want, you're living like King Uzziah, and you're not living in a way that's pleasing to God. You need to make a change in your life. This evening, if you need to restore your relationship with God by doing what it is that He says to do, by repenting of your sin, we ask that you would, you would do that this evening. Your soul is in jeopardy, and you need to make a change in order to be right with God. Perhaps this morning, you've never done the things, or this evening, excuse me, you've never done the things that God requires in order to be in a right relationship with Him to begin with. Throughout the New Testament, there is a pattern for what it is that God wants us to do in order to be a part of His kingdom, part of those that are going to contact His grace and be saved eternally and live eternally with God. First of all, we have to hear and understand the message that Jesus is the Son of God, that He came from heaven, He lived a perfect life, and without having sinned, He died on the cross for our sins. We have to repent of our past life of sin. That is, we've got to have a change of mind that's based on godly sorrow. A change of mind that points us in another direction, that points us in the direction that God would have us to go. And we've got to confess publicly that message that we understood, that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died for our sins. And based on that confession, be baptized for the remission of our sins. If you have any need this evening, whether it's for prayers to the church or to be baptized, we ask that you make that known now as we stand and as we sing.